This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And once again this week, we will have the symphony of animal sounds behind us, and between these two episodes that we uh, are recording today, Taylor said, I have to go check to make sure everything is okay, and I heard her in the distance talking to talking to the geese it was hysterical i'm not going to quote what she said it's okay you can quote it i'm not embarrassed <laughs> but one of, one of the one of the one of the geese is the the very famous ryan gosling uh where i believe did the did the name come through the facebook From group face, for ryan facebook group. yep yes okay so ryan is, is still dominating the action but he's sharing space with a new one Yes. So, buckle up. Here's our (laughs) ride. (laughs) Okay. So, this is my first experience hatching goslings. And everything that I have read about geese is that they make really good mothers. Now, with chickens, which is where all my experiences come from, I tend to not let the mama hens that hatch chicks uh, keep them all because they are just dismal at keeping them alive. And if I let them keep the chicks, I would just find dead babies littered throughout the yard. So what I will do is I'll let them have one or two, knowing those are the sacrificial ones. And I'll take the rest of them and brood them myself until they're big enough to return back to the flock. I had heard that geese were supposed to be great mothers, and I am here to tell you that is a lie. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they are great mothers. But what happened was um, Georgia walked off her nest. She had been sitting on eggs, and I had actually given her more eggs out of the incubator thinking, well, she will do a better job with them than I will. And that is true as far as actually getting to the hatching stage goes. Uh, eggs that are hatched under geese have a much better success rate than eggs that are hatched in an incubator. So that part was cool. But then she just decided to start acting a little bit like um, a teenage mom who thought having a baby would be cool for about two weeks and then was like, nah, I just want to go hang out and drink and smoke with my friends. So that's pretty much what happened. And she abandoned her nest. And I started noticing that Throughout the day, she'd be gone more and more and more hours. And I started stressing like about these eggs, that they're not going to make it through all this neglect. And right about that same time, Frances decided she wanted to start sitting. And I know that if nothing else about Frances, she will sit and just sit and sit and sit. Because last year, that's what she was doing. And she wouldn't get off the nest. And then I was like frantically trying to find her babies so that she wouldn't just sit there wasting away on the nest. So I knew that she'd be fine for hatching them. So I took all of George's eggs and I gave them to Francis. But in the end, only two of them survived the neglect. So gave those to her 
And then I went and pulled out more eggs from the incubator and gave her the ones that were the closest in like development, whatever. And the way that I was figuring is I already got Ryan inside the house. I just cannot handle any more of this right now. So I will let her raise the babies and we'll be good to go. So she, the, the hatching starts and I'm all excited and she's clearly very excited. And every time I would go and check the nest and thank God this is Francis because she will let me mess with her. Other geese would probably take off a finger. She, so I was just checking on the babies and they were hatching. I was very excited, but I noticed that they were like kind of squished down at the bottom. And so just as a precaution, I took a couple of them and put them in an inc the incubator just so that they could finish the hatching and be warm. And, and then when they were ready, I was going to go bring them back to her. So they didn't all hatch exactly at the same time because, you know, some how fast they develop and grow is based on how warm they are. And so if some of them are getting more heat than others, they're going to grow faster than the others, whatever. So one of them hatched first, and then two of them hatched, and then there were two eggs that I could see were getting ready to hatch. So like, awesome, she's going to have five babies. And so I took the the one, and when he was fluffy, I brought him back, and then I took another two and had them in the incubator. And when the, I was ready to bring the third one back to her, I go outside and the first baby is just cold and dead on the ground about three feet away from the nest. And I was just beside myself. Like I, I was so upset emotionally. I was, like took it and I put it back in the incubator because there's this saying, and I have found it to be very true, that it's not dead until it's warm and dead. So it was really my hope that maybe there was some life left in this little guy and he would survive and he didn't. And I was just an emotional wreck over it. Well, there's some other stuff going on at the same time that didn't help, but it really crushed me. And so, and I was thinking, well, what did I do wrong? Like, how did he get so far away from the nest? And I thought, okay, maybe it's because he heard all the other geese making a big ruckus because they could tell that she had babies and they wanted babies. And so it wandered out to them. And then they were like, yeah, we don't know who you are. Stay away from us. And it just kind of got abandoned and died. So I like got all the geese, locked them away so they couldn't get any closer. And I'm like, all right, now she has peace. Everything's going to be fine. And so uh, you know, I check on her at night and she's got her two babies in there with her. She's doing great. I took the other two eggs just in case because I didn't know if she was going to walk off the nest with these two already being hatched. So I just put those in the incubator to be safe. And the next morning I wake up and I'm like, well, I'm going to go check on her. It's a cold morning. I just want to make sure everything's OK. And I go out there and there's two more dead babies, just cold, lying on the ground on their backs, just lifeless. And I was so mad. I wasn't devastated like the day before, but really upset. And Frances is just like wandering around in circles, calling to her babies, completely confused about why they aren't answering her. And I'm like, because you killed them through neglect? <laughs> so I just picked them up off the ground and almost just out of spite, I think it was, I shoved them in the incubator like you know, like, how did this happen? This is so not okay. And I just, you know, I was upset, but not devastated like the day before, because I guess I just, you know, a little more prepared for it this time. And I go about my day and I'm 
trying to get some work done. And about an hour and a half later, I start hearing peeping coming from the incubator. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, okay. So that egg that was getting close to hatching must have hatched. And I go and I look in the incubator to see what's going on. And one of the dead babies had come back to life. And I was like, oh, my God. I, I was, it was cold, just lifeless. And so this is the saying, you know, if it's not warm and dead, it's not dead. So it, it came back to life. So now I have a Lazarus. Uh, the other one did not make it. But one of the two eggs I was waiting to hatch did hatch. So at least, oh, my God, at least there's two of them. And I don't have another Ryan situation because Ryan thinks he's a person or she. I don't know if it's a girl or a boy. And um, it's big enough now that I could bring it into the living room. I, I have like this really small little dog kennel cage thing. And I put that on top of a towel. And Ryan can be in there with a heat lamp and the cat just adores him and he loves the cat and they kind of keep themselves company. But I keep a towel over it because if Ryan can see me, he will pace that cage back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, trying to get out like his little feet are trying to climb up the cage to get to me. And so I have to put a towel over it to, so he can't see me. And then he's like, Oh, this is my cozy little house. And he just kind of stays a little more quiet in there. I can't have another situation like that where I got them two, three weeks apart. So they can't be together because the big one will crush the little one. And uh, I'm just like, oh, my God. So at least there's two of them. So they can keep each other company. And I will brood them until they're older. And then I'll probably have to rehome them. How can I rehome Lazarus? I don't know. Lazarus, I guess, has got a home here now. <laughs> I just, oh, my God. So, yeah, it's just like, I, how did I get myself into this? I thought that the geese could be the ones taking care of the babies. And they make awful mothers. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Goodness. It sounds like and, you and may I can be. I guarantee you, next next laying season, we're going to be doing this all over again because I can't just let the eggs go bad. Like, they have to be hatched. <laughs> just like, can't let them go to waste. So, yes. anyway. Yes. Raise your hand if you think this won't happen again. <laughs> no one's raising their hand. So, do you, do you feel like you're a little overly possessive of these geese? That was a really smooth, Steve. That was good. I'm, yeah. I'm impressed. After fumbling badly the last couple of weeks. So uh, we have more questions this week, and these are the last of the questions from Tanya, who sent just a boatload of uh, really good questions to us. And the first one uh, involves possessives. Yes. And it says, Taylor, you said a couple times that using possessives like his, hers, etc., takes something away from the reader and I just don't get it. Could you try and explain what you mean by that in more detail, please? Okay, I'm going to try. And I can't guarantee that I'm going to do a very good job because some of this stuff I understand on just sort of an instinctual psychological level. And I don't always have the words to explain how it works the way it works. The basic concept be, be, behind trying to avoid possessives is that, well, it's the concept of anything that you take away, that you give to the character, you take away from the reader, that you want the reader to be fully vested. You don't want to create that distance, right, between the reader and the character. Not all styles of writing are going to work for that, but I'm talking specifically about the way that I write, which is very up close and very first 
first-person shooter sort of point of view where we're seeing everything the characters seeing, experiencing it as they're experiencing it. It's not, the stories are not told from a distance. So when you're in that zone, that, that viewpoint of writing, and the character has an object or is picking up an object, when the character goes to pick up the object, it is neutral. It belongs to the reader. It belongs to the story. When the character picks up her object, it belongs to the character. And that is separate from the reader. If it belongs to the character, it no longer belongs to the reader. Now, you cannot completely avoid the use of possessives. You're just going to have to use them for to to point out who owns what within a story sometimes where i choose to avoid possessives and switch to to stay to neutral words is when there's an option there's a choice between possessive or not and i will choose the or it in worst case scenarios because it is a i consider it to be a filler word and if you can ever replace it by whatever it is describing the thing that it is meant to refer to, if you can find a way to replace it without over-repeating the same words over and over, then take that, do that. So it is sort of a last-case scenario if I can't find another neutral way to say it. But here's it where I first noticed this and I, I may, this may be exactly the same thing I said the last time when I was talking about possessive. I don't know. It is something that really stuck with me. And I was on a panel at, I think it was Bowser Khan, And the person sitting next to me was talking about my book, my character, my, this, my, that. And it made what she had accomplished feel very small because it belonged to her. It wasn't out there in the world as, so this story is about, this character is like, it is my story is about, my character is like, and it is, she was giving ownership of it to herself and it was hers. But when you're an author, you want the rest of the world to embrace it as theirs and take it so that they will read it and become part of it with you. And so when you refer to stuff as my, 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 it feels very small and not important. So you will probably never see that in like a company doesn't say my product. They will say our product because our doesn't mean just the company. It's inclusive to more than just the person who is speaking. It's why sometimes people speak in the royal we. It it is a way to include others in on whatever the thing is. So when I look at authors who talk about, hey, my book is about to launch, I think they are doing themselves a disservice because it makes the thing seem small. And if you look at what those who have professional teams behind them do, it is, hey, the next so-and-so novel is about to launch because it's about the character, not about the author. 
It's that same concept of who owns this thing that gets translated into the actual writing process. When you're in a character's frame of mind and everything is my this, my this, my that, or in third person, her this, her this, her that, it makes it feel small. And it makes it feel like it belongs to the character and you are just sort of an outsider, not really part of what's happening. But when we switch over to using neutral language like the, that, whatever, then now it becomes more inclusive like we and our. And then that brings the the, the reader into the scenario instead of standing outside the circle, like watching what's happening. And it's very, very subtle. And doing it just once or twice along the way is not going to make or break a story. But if you are conscious about it, those small, small little word choices of switching from the possessive to the neutral, it has an impact on the whole of how readers engage with and interact with the character and the story. So I don't know that that explanation actually is any better or any more in detail than the last one I gave in it. For all I know, it's word for word the same. Um, but if it's not, if, if it hasn't helped to clarify, if you come back and say, okay, what I mean specifically is, and give me some examples to work with, then I will be able to better answer that question, I think. All right. And let me throw in my answer to this because the manuscript that I got back from Taylor after she went through it, there were several instances where she called this out and I didn't completely get it until I made the changes. And when I made the changes, I totally got it. It it just, so maybe it's just something you try in your own manuscript where you have a little bit too much of his or her, this, that, or the other thing. And, and when you change it, it just, feels better as a reader. And I, I don't know how to explain it any better than, than that. Taylor went into a lot more detail, but just as a reader, it felt better to me reading it uh, without the possessives. It, it's just this, it's like the, it creates a, a film of separation. Now, it's not huge, it's not enormous, but the difference of perceived quality in the writing on the whole will be much stronger. The perceived strength, and when I say strength, I'm talking about, like, you know how we talk about using strong verbs? Like, it draws the reader into the story. It, it does the same thing on a, a subtler level, level. And this could be that, okay, so English is one of those languages where you can choose to, it's not a gendered language, so whether the object is his book, her book, or the book, it, it's not going to change the interpretation or the meaning of it, but, or, but it will change the weight. But if your native language is a gendered language, then that, this might not translate well into any other language of writing. Um, if you're writing in English coming from a gendered language, it also might be really difficult to conceptualize because it is 
is something that is innate with the, within the language itself. So if you're writing in English as a native English speaker, it might be easier for it to make sense. If you are writing in English as a non-native English speaker, where English wasn't your first language, and your mother tongue is a gendered language, this is probably going to be confusing. And if you are writing in a foreign language, but listening to these podcasts in English, and your mother tongue is a gendered language, this might completely not apply. <laughs> like, I, don't even, I cannot say that this applies to other forms, other languages, only English to, to a native English speaker. So um, if you're listening to this and English is not your mother tongue and you're still confused, it's probably not your fault. <laughs> the fault is not with you. It's it's with the language itself and the the small subtleties and cultural aspects that get picked up along the way that are very, very difficult to do an apples to apples straight across the board on. All right. Next question. What do you still struggle with regularly or still haven't figured out a good solution for? And this was one of those on a more personal note that she thought that it would be interesting and fun for for listeners to know about. And when Steve and I were reading these questions, the first word out of my mouth in response to this, what do you still struggle with regularly or still haven't figured out a good solution for was writing. I still... <laughs> I still struggle with it regularly, and I still haven't figured out a good solution for how to write. Period. All of it. I think and she was you know, looking for a little bit more detail. But 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 it's everything. Um, I would say that if I had to go more granular on that, I would say I still struggle with transitions which is getting us from one scene to the next. And I, I was actually, Steve and I were talking about that not too long ago, that we've never really done a show entirely on transitions. So try and remember that to put a, put a pin in that one to come back to it. But transitions will always be a struggle for me. And I think, okay, how do I even explain this? The struggle is finding a way to match what's on the page with the feeling that I have in my chest. And somebody pointed this out, just a simple line out of the fulcrum, uh, the, the, the sneak peek that's available. And they were like, this is just such an amazing way to say this thing, because normally you would see this other thing instead. I went, we paused. I went and hunted this down. And here's this simple uh, sentence that's in that sneak peek. It says, time and urgency bore down with their own crushing weights. And the comment was along the lines of, you could have said something boring, like she was feeling the time pressure. And that just makes such a difference in the writing. And it made me think when I got that comment on that particular sentence, time and urgency bore down with their own crushing weights versus she was feeling time pressure. And I know that 
that type of wording isn't the first thing that comes down on the page for me. But she was feeling the time pressure isn't what I feel inside my chest when I'm trying to find words to convey the emotion or the weight that I understand of the story in me. And I'm trying to find the words to convey that on the page. So there is a lot of time spent on just that single sentence, trying to find a way to convey this understanding, feeling, and put it properly on the page. So it takes time for me to figure that out, to figure the words. What is it that I'm actually trying to say? So over the years, as as this has gone on, that has not gotten any easier. So in terms of, you know, what do I still struggle with regularly or still haven't figured out a good solution for is that. But that's why I say writing, (laughs) because it's such a struggle to find the way to convey um, the, the words, to find the words, to convey this, this sense of what I know it's supposed to feel like. And I don't expect that that's going to get any easier. In fact, I think that over time, it's only going to get harder because the more I learn how to do it, the higher my expectations go. And then the harder it becomes to, to meet and match that. And can I just say, I think that that particular sentence, to me, that kind of thing is almost your signature as a writer, because I see it in everything that you write. I don't see it like lots of times in everything that you write, but I see several instances of it in everything that you write, including lots of things that have not been published yet, where I'll just see it. And in my own mind, I'll okay, that's... That's a Taylorism, or it, it's something that if if someone were reviewing this and trying to find out who wrote it, they would read that sentence and go, "Oh, this was Taylor Stevens." Thank you. I'm I'm blushing a little bit, and um, I'm thinking like if I was trying to hack this, if I needed to find a way to say an if then or a whatever. Sentences like that come about because I'm trying to avoid the passive voice and I'm trying to avoid feeling words. So using the example that was given by the person who made that comment where they said you could have said something as boring as she was feeling the time pressure. Well, was feeling is passive. If I wanted to avoid the passive voice, I would structure it as she felt the time pressure. But felt time pressure is weak and doesn't exactly convey any uh, conflict or in trying to avoid that feeling word felt the time pressure. I try very hard to eliminate any feeling words felt, thought, found, saw, heard. Most of those are fillers that can be eliminated. And instead of saying she heard whatever, it would be down, you know, from behind footsteps came in. Instead of saying like she heard footsteps coming up fast from behind, it would be footsteps came up fast from behind. And so a sentence like this comes about from avoiding the passive and avoiding the feeling. How do you express the same thing without using feelings and without using the passive. 
And we get a sentence like that from that. But it doesn't, it's not like it just comes and flows right onto the page or anything. So that would be the hack the hack the craft twist to that answer is here's the problem and here's how I try and solve it. That was a great answer. <laughs> All right. I, I didn't think about that in advance. Just like as I'm looking at that sentence, trying to understand why it is what it is, I'm like, okay, probably because of okay. All right. Last question. Is there anything you feel you don't have the skills to do yet and therefore avoid doing in your writing or storytelling? Um, no, but that's probably just because I just have this sense like, okay, well, I'll just figure this out. And then I'll get into it and I'll be like, this is hard. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and uh, because I don't like that's what happened with the whole liar's legacy story. It was just so complex. I clearly didn't have the skill set to novelize that story. And I had no choice but to do it anyway, because by the time I figured that out, it was too far into the end. So if I was a little smarter, I'd probably sit there and go, do I have the skills to do this or not? But I don't. I'm just like, oh, I'll figure it out. <laughs> Pay the price for it in the end. <laughs> but I mean, you learn that way too. And I think as you you always want to be growing and challenging yourself. I, I imagine that once you have 20, 30 books under your belt, you're probably bored and you know, trying to find some way to do something different. And so I don't I don't do you think any author ever really feels like, oh yeah, I got this? I don't, I don't, I don't know anyone who does. I think it's all a case of we're all just weighing it and figuring, I mean, even those who plot meticulously, um, they, there's still always a point except for, okay, I have met some, and please forgive me, very male egos, (laughs) authors who may, they just have this confidence that, and anything they do is going to be good. It doesn't mean that it is, but it just, they don't experience that level of self-doubt. They're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm the shit. And because they act that way in the world treats them that way. But except for those very, very few, I have never met authors, male or female, who are just like, yeah, I totally got this. I know exactly what I'm doing. My skill set is unparalleled and there is nothing that I can't accomplish on the page ever. (laughs) There's just, everybody's filled with self-doubt and, um, you know, second guessing themselves. It doesn't matter how many books I know. I know authors who've written 20, 30 books who will still hit parts in their current work in progress. And they're just like, I've got to stop and take a walk. I just don't even know what I just got myself into here. I'm not really sure what the problem is. So I can't figure out how to fix it. And then, you know, about, you know, several hours later, they'll be like, okay, I think I know what to do here. And and they'll continue on. And it's just like this one foot or one word in front of the other, kicking, right in the butt, one word at a time. And that's, that's really what it boils down to. Um, I don't also don't know any authors who will be like, I don't have the skills to do this, and so I don't want to do it. I just thought of something, though. There is one thing that I do feel I don't have the skill to do, 
And so I do avoid. And that is ghostwriting or taking on somebody else's work with established characters that weren't mine to begin with. I did it once with a collaborative project for the Marvel's Black Widow, uh, Bad Blood for the, um, the Realm Publishing Company. It was, I was just one of a team and I never would have done it if every single other person on that team wasn't just super strong in Marvel lore and uh, Marvel characters and whatnot. And even still, with everybody else being as strong as they were and understanding the characters' history and all their different, you know, the different uh, universes or however all that works, I still was just filled with so much dread and angst and anguish the whole entire time because I couldn't get, I didn't know the character. I, I, I had ideas of the character and as much research as I'd gone back to try and make sure I had an understanding in the character beyond, you know, the movies, because the movies were like, no, anything, you know, in the movies does not count for this. You have to know the, the comics, which I didn't know at all. And so I was just like picking people's brains and trying to understand it and stuff. But that was, I never want to repeat that again. And so the idea of taking on somebody else's characters and having to write within the lines that they already built. And I'm talking about established characters. I I would not have as much hesitancy doing that if it was the character's first outing and if I was writing subsequent outings for that character. But in terms of like, there are authors who take on, for example, the, the, the Jason Bourne um, legacy. Like there's so many books, Jason Bourne books that are still being written. Um, that's probably the closest I would get saying, yeah, I could probably maybe do that. But still that sense of panic that I feel inside my chest, just thinking about it, taking on somebody else's creative project and being responsible for crafting the story that matches the expectations of readers who've read everything that's ever been that character's ever been in i'm just like that my palms will start sweating at the thought of it so yes there is one thing i feel i don't have the skills to do yet and therefore avoid doing in my writing and storytelling (laughs) my own characters no there we have it so that is the last of the questions that we have from tanya so tanya thank you so much for sending these questions uh, that has been such a such a boon to the show, and, and we're very grateful that you took the time to send such thoughtful questions. And it's been so much fun, too. I really enjoyed this. All right. So we will be back with you again next Tuesday. Thanks so much for being here, guys. We'll see you next week.